Today is February 2nd, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is a sort of a local, I guess, or Texan, local Texan. Um, it's Laura Colgan. She's an assistant professor of neurobiology at the Center for Learning and Memory at UT Austin, uh, where her lab, uh, she just started a lab. She studies the functional significance and mechanisms of oscillatory activity in the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex. You can jump right in and correct me. Anyway. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> correct. <laughs> so around the room, we've got kind of a small group. We've got um, Brian Derrick. Hello. Hi, Brian. Hi. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. Hi, Charlie. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So I want to, since we have some gray hair in the room, um, I wanted to actually go back. I'm looking at you, Charlie. I know. And you, Brian. I, have <laughs> gray hair. I don't have any gray hair. I just went to the salon. Um, <laughs> so I, I just want to kind of go back to uh, some of the early literature on oscillations, just because I've never read some of those papers, and they seem like they'd be pretty cool reading and um, pretty cool to talk about. So, But some of these observations of sensory evoked um, oscillations in the brain, they date back, I had thought, only to the 40s and 50s, but apparently they go back even earlier, right? Um, and it's, But it's really only in the 80s, I guess, that the discussions became centered around things like synchrony and, and perceptual binding and, and things like that. Um, so what was the thinking about oscillations early on? And, and you know, what, what did people think about where these signals were coming from and what they were doing? Well, I think that it's interesting to talk about when talking especially about gamma oscillations because I think that actually the field of oscillations always has this kind of skepticism associated with it. And I think it's interesting to think back about how oscillations were first discovered. So when the alpha wave was discovered by Hans Berger, the reason why he set out to, to put electrodes on the skull and try to measure something is because I believe the story is that his sister had been in a horse riding accident and he felt that he knew that at the exact moment that his sister had this injury. And so he came to the and that was what year? Oh, gosh. It's like 1918 or something. I, you know, Wikipedia it if you're interested. <laughs> I don't remember. Something around then. But um, he, he believed that there must be some waves that are moving through the air from our brains that can, like, signal each other like an extrasensory perception. So you can imagine that um, many people were afraid to touch this topic with a with a ten foot pole because people don't you know hard scientists don't like to be associated with these kind of ideas typically. So I think that it's interesting to to speculate whether that is. Um, I mean, looking back, we realize that that's one of the fundamental discoveries of clinical neuropsychology and. Um, it didn't really take off as quickly as you would have expected it to. And I wonder if that's the reason, if that's related to the reason why. And it, gamma rhythms today still continue um, to be met with a bit of speculation because they have um, been proposed to be important for consciousness. And there's been um, really interesting experiments that have been done with um, trained monks doing meditation and enhancing their gamma rhythms. But again, it's always got this kind of, you know, out there <laughs> affiliation. I don't know what else to call it. California. But yeah, <laughs> right. It's the, some people are, oh, you're studying gamma rhythms? Yeah, oh, oh no. okay, you know. <coughs> well, that's um, awful. 
consciousness no, I know. is the new extrasensory perception. We used to be skeptical about ESP, but now we're skeptical about consciousness. consciousness yeah. We soon will be skeptical <laughs> about everything. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's but. great. <laughs> I, believe, I believe at that time, um, from what I remember from my early courses is that they really were skeptical about electrical signals coming from the brain and being able to record from, from the surface. And there was a, a competing scientist who was able to get a clay pot and fill it with fluid and put electrodes on it and to record something like EEG from this large thing. And it turned out that they, they were indeed electrical signals generated by this fluid but there were <clears throat> reasons why it happened. Uh, there was capacitance, and the fluid was an electrolyte, and there was all sorts of things happening. So, so it really didn't solve the problem. But the dilemma at that time was: is are those really waves emanating from the brain? And so, uh, uh, if they are, the action at a distance problem goes away because I suppose if you're close enough to the brain, at least one over r squared distance, you could probably pick up those signals. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're extremely small. I mean, the scalp measured signals are so small that as to uh, generate some skepticism in and of themselves. I mean, um, and that the thing that the bowl of Jello and the grapefruit, uh, right. both of whom had their EEGs taken at some time or another, and uh, and because we're looking at tiny little signals, and that people claimed that they were seeing comparable signals from those things that that obviously weren't engaged in extrasensory perception. But I don't I think we're stretching a long way back to find that skepticism. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't remember anybody thinking in the nineteen seventies when I, I I can at least speak for the nineteen seventies that anybody thinking that EGs weren't incredibly important and valuable. I think it was largely the Herbert Jasper and the Montreal Neurological Institute group that gave the EEG a, a sort of respectable status in the neuroscience world and got everybody talking about what could possibly be generating periodic waveforms on the surface of the brain and in what a periodic waveform could possibly be good for. Uh, because periodic waveforms are not what we expect. They carry no information intrinsically. You know, we think of them as uh, as carrier waves in radio. They're not the thing that carries the information. And the information is fundamentally aperiodic. And so, so why would the brain be bothering with these slow waves and whatnot was... Um, and then the, the other question, which comes up all the time, I'm sure it comes up with you all the time, is... Uh, how in the world could these things be generated and what sh should we think about their significance? You know, if you don't know exactly what's making them, then how do you know exactly what, they're, what, what they signify? And so this, uh, I'm sure this is a great and recurrent theme in your work when you're presenting your work. Yeah. Somebody's always giving you a hard time about where they come from. But I think there's been a lot of progress in understanding where they yeah, come from. I think there. I mean, there's there has been a tremendous amount of really excellent work done in different types of experimental preparations than what I use to suggest that the gamma rhythms in particular are 
a rhythm that it's more involving inhibition than excitation. And I think um, at least I have to say I haven't really recorded anything in vivo um, to get at that mechanism, but going along with the work that other people have done and going along with that idea, I think that it's very interesting to think about what that could mean functionally as kind of a filtering mechanism for only allowing the most important inputs to get through. And when you think about an area like the hippocampus that needs to do memory encoding, you don't want to remember everything. So if you're rhythmically inhibiting, you know, um, all these areas and rhythmically inhibiting all these neurons, then only the inputs that are appropriately timed will be able to come in in these short windows, you know, between this inhibition. But then also on top of that, you know, we know that we have, um, we have feed forward inhibition, we have feedback inhibition. So if, if the, um, if a neuron is not able to get its signal, if it's not able to fire before it gets the feedback inhibition from the other neurons that have been able to fire, then um, you can see that that could very easily make a nice filtering out mechanism for irrelevant information. And I should say that this type of mechanism, this um, winner take all or percent winner take all, it's not um, made up by me. That's like a known idea that has been put out there for gamma oscillations. Um, there was a recent, there's been several different groups that have put that idea out there, but there was a recent paper by John Lisman where he proposed a specific model where this could be a mechanism for why gamma would be important. I think it's, we should probably say that the, the, the electrical oscillations you're looking at are not global oscillations taken from the skull or something. Oh, that's they're, true. <laughs> they're that for, from particular places in We're the brain. We're getting off target. They, they reflect stuff that's happening <laughs> in, in, a, in a local group of neurons rather right. than in the whole brain. At right, one time. that's right. So I'm recording intracranially from behaving rats. And um, the most analogous method that we have to look at similar activity in humans is in patients that have such severe epilepsy that it can't be treated with medication and they have electrodes implanted into their brains to um, measure their activity to figure out where the seizure is originating from because they might actually have a surgery to, to take that region out. So there are several groups around the world that are studying these recordings from these patients and those type of recordings would be analogous to the type of work that I'm doing in rats. I mean, fairly analogous. The humans, of course, they can't get up and run around freely. They're, they're laying in a bed. They're not moving very much. But, but we do know that um, these type of rhythms that I'm recording in the rats, they do at least exist in human hippocampus as well. You can see them with the depth electrodes. Well, I, I remember when, um, was it, what was this before theta was discovered in humans? And people didn't see theta in humans, and the assumption was that theta didn't occur in humans, therefore it couldn't really be that important. And, and just like Charlie said, when I was taught oscillations, particularly the alpha rhythm, what that was, to, according to the, the scientists who taught me at this time, was, uh, this was sort of a standby mode. We're in a sort of an oscillatory standby mode, because all of the neurons are doing the same thing. There is no information content in this kind of a... Uh, symmetric kind of firing. Now, uh, I guess 
we, we look at it differently, though, in terms of a structure like the hippocampus and the oscillations. And this is sort of how I was describing it to, to you, Soma, and, to, and how I describe it to students, because theta rhythm really has only been recently understood in terms of mechanics of how it works. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is sort of my simplistic explanation of hippocampal theta, in that it's really the principal neurons generate the currents of theta, but what really produces the oscillation or the interaction of those neurons with inhibitory interneurons. Mm-hmm. And in particular, there are generally two groups of in- families of inhibitory interneurons that are mutually inhibitory, and they alternate going on and off, and they turn on and off different dendritic regions within the neurons in the hippocampus. And those groups of neurons are paced by the medial septum. So really, the currents are, it was, goes back to, that was Jim Bauer uh, who was asking those questions. It comes back to Jim Bauer's question of, you know, what's, what, what's important in this, in this scheme? And <laughs> this thing to you, quoting Keats, is how do you separate the dancer from the dance? And that is, is at what point is the oscillation not the phenomenon? And when is it neural and not neural? And yeah, we may have lost our listeners a little bit in that. Oh, that didn't help. Okay. But I, I think the question was based on, uh, so the question that you're referring to is Jim's question, which was based on, are these rhythms, are they uh, a byproduct or are they, actually, are, are they actually driving cells or are they actually a byproduct of, of cell processes, I guess? So, yes, they are. Yes. <laughs> yes, both. Yeah. Yes to both. So I have a... Uh, about the local field potentials, though, how local are they? Uh, if we move just a little ways, I understand that no matter where we record in the hippocampus, we will see theta or we will see gamma. But if if we just move a little ways in the hippocampus, does it shift in phase a lot? Does everything change? Or is it really a global rhythm? So people always use this word local field potential, but... I never know what they mean. I mean, how lo- they don't even know exactly how far away their things are that are contributing to that signal. Well, if we so we have why we record using tetrodes, which are four wires twisted together. So if we were to look at the signal on each of those wires, they're very close in space. Um, those are very close to each other, and the signal would be identical on all four wires. So on that time scale, yeah, things are identical. So that's but if spatial, we move, if how we move, how far, how far are the tetrad wires apart? Oh gosh, they're right up Micron. ne- microns. Yes, right up next to each other. So wow. they're twisted very tightly together. Um, but if we then, I mean, we have multiple tetrodes that we're recording from the same recording drive, and there we're talking about tens of microns away from each other, and there you will see phase shifts. But I should also say that with my recording method, we are using independently movable tetrodes. So I can't say for sure whether the phase shifts are from being at slightly different depths or if the phase shifts are from being on, you know, along the longitudinal extent of the hippocampus, which would, I guess, speak more to the question that you were asking, not about the dipole, but more about the extent of the wave so I, yeah, space. so I know that in the these same things have been studied in cerebral cortex, and there one always asks the question: Is this a wave that's traveling uh, along the cerebral cortex, or is it 
uh, are there multiple generators well, that for interact? Well, for theta, we now we now know that theta is a traveling wave. So, ah. like, there was a paper by Siopis' group, and then I know I don't know if it was published, but at least I saw it presented at the Society for Neuroscience meeting that that work was replicated by a student in Matt Wilson's group. So, but for gamma, I I don't. No, <laughs> I don't think that anybody has looked at that. Yeah, although a lot of people presuppose that's what's happening. Yeah. 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 So there's an origin of theta at some place, and then it travels. I mean, of course, it isn't. It isn't propagating necessarily, it's but it's. Uh, yeah. Right. So, so within the hippocampus, though, uh, the other answer isn't a mutually exclusive answer. There's also separate generators for theta in the hippocampus. So there's sort of different sources of, of the, the oscillation. And so as you go down through the hippocampus, you'll see the phase shift depending upon which source it is. So, and that's right, yeah. And that's why you don't ever, you don't get a nice clean phase reversal with theta. Right. You see these weird shifts because as Brian says, there's multiple generators that can be entrained by the input from the entorhinal cortex. It can be entrained by... CA3, it's driven by the medial septum. You know, it's very, it's really complicated, and it's not like the sharp wave. You have this very clean dipole when you record down CA1. It's a very clear phase shift, and you don't see that at all, theta. Well, I wanted to get to some of um, some of your work. So, so some of your work with the Moser group in the last few years was really important in describing um, the functional significance of frequency variations in, in the gamma band, which is, I guess, huge. Um, so you've shown that fast and slow variants of the gamma rhythm differentially can route information. That's sort of the punchline. And, I, and I'd, mm -hmm. I'd like you to correct me and maybe go into some more detail in, in your own words. So they, they actually can route information flow and that these different channels actually s could serve very different functional roles in terms of memory. Um, and so could, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that work and maybe where you're taking it in your own laboratory? Yes, so what we found is that this very broad band of frequencies actually seemed to be um, subdividing into two narrower frequency bands that were actually, as you said, serving as different communication channels. And we were recording in hippocampal subregion CA1. And interestingly, CA1 receives two major sources of um, fast excitatory input, one from neighboring subfield CA3 and one from the antirhinal cortex. And what we found is that it seems like when CA1 is participating in slow gamma oscillations, that we see that it seems to be preferentially coupling its activity with CA3. And when CA1 is participating in a higher frequency, what we call the fast gamma oscillation, that CA1 appeared to be coupling its activity with the inputs from the entorhinal cortex. Now, we think that this is something that could be important for memory processing because what we found is that these two different frequencies of rhythms did not tend to occur at the same time. They seem, it seemed as though there might be some mechanism for um, them antagonizing each other because they didn't tend to um, overlap in time. And so it's interesting to think about it in terms of memory interference. You know, we presume that the brain has different ways that it prevents memory interference. 
we know that if you are trying to encode something at the same time that you're retrieving something else, those memories are going to interfere with each other and vice versa. So um, we think that this could be perhaps a neural mechanism for keeping new information. You know, it may feel to us like it's happening, you know, rather simultaneously, but if you are trying to compare something that you're retrieving with some new information that's coming in, maybe it's nice to have the information coming in on these different frequencies so that it can be somehow separated so that it doesn't um, interfere with each other. Um, so this is a way you can functionally have CA1 cells performing two completely different functions simultaneously? The same well, cells? it wouldn't actually be, as it, it might feel to us simultaneously because the time scale of gamma is so fast, it's outside the range of our conscious perception. Mm -hmm. But within the hippocampal network, it's not, it seems to be that it's keeping it separate in time. So it doesn't have to, it's not simultaneous. It's like duplexing, I guess, in a way, with having one line having two, uh, two different, really two or more uh, sequences of information at two different frequencies, mm -hmm. so they don't interfere with each other. I think that's how cable works. <laughs> My internet, and, and, and I'm able to get Fox. So, <laughs> well, I'm, of course, now we're talking about these rhythms as if they carry some information. So I, I have to ask, how can information be carried? I mean, how do we infer something about information from the fact that there's um, that there are these two different field potentials that we can measure? Well, I don't think that it has to be anything different than the way that many people believe that the neurons are already carrying information. It's the spikes. Because certainly, I mean, when you look at theta as an example of a rhythm that everyone would agree that theta in the hippocampus is strongly modulating the firing activity of the neurons. But even though the neurons are reliably, so what you're saying, yeah, they're not carrying information, there's nothing unexpected happening there, they're tending to fire on a particular phase of theta, but they're still you know, multiple spikes happening on that one phase of theta, on, on that one particular cycle of theta on that phase, so that the spikes are still carrying the code, but it's just constraining when they're happening in time so that perhaps the spikes are coming in at the proper time for communicating with their postsynaptic targets. You know, if you're lining up the windows of excitability so that the spikes would be happening closer to each other in time if you want plasticity. So that's one thing I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but one thing that we think is neat about fast gamma possibly being um, the, the wave that's involved in memory encoding is that the time scale of it fits very well with the time scale of spike timing dependent plasticity. So we know if we, if we deliver a train of inputs to the hippocampus, which is a you know one pulse, four pulses occurring at 100 hertz, which is the fast gamma frequency, repeating on theta cycles. That would be what's called theta burst stimulation, and that's exactly like fast gamma riding on theta that we're recording in the real hippocampus, and that's the paradigm that's used widely around the world for inducing um, long-term potentiation, synaptic plasticity in brain slices. 
So I don't think that, um, I think the information you're asking what to get back to your original question, what would be carrying the information? I think it would be the same thing that would be carrying the information without the rhythms there. It's the spikes that it's the spike trains that are carrying the information. It's just that I believe that these, um, rhythms are organizing the different neurons in such a way so that they can communicate with each other more effectively. Yeah, a way that's been described is that the rhythms quantize time, so information is sort of riding waves. And that kind of, it's like a clock in a computer. And, and that kind of um, uh, synchronous updating is really important when you come to storing sequences. Because that's when the temporal order of things really becomes important. And so having sequences relayed on waves, where in the hippocampus, most principal cells fire close to the trough, at least the descending phase, and, and the local theta recorded at the cell body. So that's common with all of the areas in the hippocampus. So it's really just sort of a, a, a conductor, I guess, of an orchestra, keeping the, the timing right. Is that way? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a perfect explanation. Yeah, and, and then, I mean, in the case of gamma, if you think, I mean, we know that there is the effect that when cells are released from a period of hyperpolarization or a period of inhibition, they will be, you know, for a short period more likely to fire. So if even if it's an inhibitory wave and we're not talking about these windows of excitatory inputs coming in, you, you know, just that release from inhibition... Um, happening at the same time kind of primes cells to be ready to to fire should an input happen to come in they'll they'll have um, a much stronger response than they would have if that um, inhibitory period hadn't come right before the excitatory input so I was just teaching that in my class so <laughs> fresh in my brain the well, I know it'll break <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, it'll break. The novelty detection yeah. idea. First, I'm, I'm really not quite sure who is the person who introduced that, but the idea is, is that the information coming through CA3 to CA1 is being compared with apparent, you know, what the real view would be in CA1, and that a mismatch there mm -hmm. would lead to perhaps an encoding state or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, I think it was it Vinogradova was the... I know they had those old those papers from Vinogradova. The comparator had, model. The comparator. Right. Mm -hmm. But CA1 that was done specifically in CA1. I'm, I, I was either... Oh, I'm sorry. Did you say in CA3? Oh, well, the CA3 input is compared to the perfect to the, path. Mm -hmm. Right, right. In CA1. Yes. So the localization back to CA1 is... The comparator model is definitely Vinogradova. And, um, but... It was either Mosher or Lissman, <laughs> I'm really sorry guys, who had proposed that that was occurring in CA1 and that the mismatch or mismatch was comparison. Oh, was, yeah, the, okay. the mismatch that that is, um, that was, a, there was a paper from John Lissman right, okay. having that, that idea. So yeah. I'm wondering if, if these different frequencies and these, the 40 versus the 80, mm -hmm. are they harmonics of each other or is there some... No, of, of course, that we worried about very strongly in the beginning and fortunately they're not integer multiples of each other so um they're not harmonics of of each other so um that's a tough one the the frequencies they they vary um they vary a lot from like one rat to another and uh 
it would be interesting to look at, you know, you don't have that much, vari- you don't have a lot of variability in the frequency from one day to the next, for example, but from one rat to the, another, like one rat's slow gamma might be 30 hertz and another one's is 45 hertz or something like that, which when you think about it in terms of time, it's not that much variability, but it would still be interesting to see whether... Um, I was just talking with one of the students at lunch if, if we looked at, you know, cage mates or genetically identical rats versus genetically distinct rats, if there would be genetic things responsible for these frequency yeah, if, differences, if individual Ryan's, differences. If Ryan's computer clock analogy is right, then the, the rat with the fastest clock should have the better CPU. You know, <laughs> the faster, the smarter one. Be smarter. Yeah, maybe. Are you familiar with the P three hundred potential? This uh, surprise to vote potential. It's a sort of a, it's a positive component in in uh, event related potentials that happens at three hundred milliseconds, <laughs> and they uh, they correlated it with IQ, and that is people who had higher IQs uh, uh, had P three hundreds that peaked earlier, you know, between two hundred and two hundred fifty milliseconds. So a faster, PP. faster yeah. synaptic right. transmission. So one of the I won't name him, but one of the principal investigators who's working with this with human in-depth electrodes, by the way, looking at P three hundreds, had gotten a license plate. This is California, and it was L eight P three, so it reads <laughs> late P three, suggesting he wasn't that bright. It's, it's a little modest thing to put on your vanity plate. I think it's sort of cute. Anyhow, it's that yeah. Kind of that thing, well, that would be that would be really interesting if the higher frequency rhythms were somehow correlated with the with a better memory. Because I mean, now I'm really speculating here, but if the if you did imagine that the potentiation had occurred and the response can come on earlier, that that would be a mechanism that could speed up the frequency of the rhythms. So maybe after you learn something, to look at if the rhythm. Was faster. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced know. that that there aren't really people who are smarter or dumber. It doesn't <laughs> exist. That, that intelligence really doesn't exist. That the really crucial thing is how quickly you process information because it doesn't really matter what your answer is. It's just a matter of getting it out faster. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's. There, there are some really good mechanistic ideas about how things like schizophrenia could be sort of disordered thinking and schizophrenia could be linked to problem with phase locking between networks and and, and I wanted to maybe have you say something about that yeah I mean I would definitely like in my lab to move work in that direction because I think that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that something is going wrong with gamma synchrony and schizophrenia. And I think it would be interesting in terms of if our hypothesis about the memory encoding versus the memory retrieval turns out to be a more general brain mechanism, not memory encoding versus memory retrieval, but bottom-up versus top-down processing, for example, um, then I think it could be very interesting to see whether there's an imbalance in slow gamma synchrony versus fast gamma synchrony in schizophrenics compared to normal people, because you can sort of imagine a scenario where um, if your um, fast gamma rhythm is coming on, it's bringing in information from the external world, and then your slow gamma rhythm turns on at the same time when it's not supposed to, when you're in evoking your own internal thoughts, then perhaps you could have a hallucination that your own internal thoughts are coming from the world around you. So 
that's one idea where um, the new ideas that we're having about slow and fast gamma synchrony could potentially be relevant for schizophrenia research. So that's definitely something that I would like to look into in the future. Um, at the moment, I think it's still important that we test our <laughs> hypotheses about the slow and fast gamma to see whether there really is a functional relevance mm -hmm. about um, to, a functional relevance to the to the results that we found so far. So that's the first step. But then we'll try to see whether it can be applied to schizophrenia research. I, I can ask, but if I ask a, a quick question about. Um, Information flow through the trisynaptic circuit. Do you have any views on does that, when when that occurs, if it occurs at all? Or, I mean, the thing is, is that <clears throat> we're looking. You're looking at direct inputs to CA1 from the entorhinal cortex. Apparently, you, you don't even need the rest of the hippocampus to get <laughs> nice, discrete place fields, which really sort of amazed me. And even if you lesion out the CA3. So what's the rest of the hippocampus for? Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm studying the wrong spot. No, 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 no. Actually, <laughs> CA3 is my favorite region, Yay. and I miss you, CA3. Um, <laughs> but I think that there, you can, there definitely would be situations where the dentate and CA3 would come in, into play, like in a novel environment, for example, when you have to encode something new, then I would... Um, I would imagine that, uh, that, I mean, you have to somehow, if the memory is somehow requiring CA3 for its retrieval, it must somehow in the beginning Be get quick. stored there. Right, exactly. <laughs> so true. how it exactly takes place, I don't, I don't know, but, um, we do know that the dentate cells don't fire very much, at least in, in familiar environments. So if you activate them in a novel environment, then that could perhaps be the, the way to open the gate to get that things really moving through that trisynaptic circuit. That's exactly what happens when they enter a novel environment. Is there's an odd decrease in the field EPSP, but the population spike for dentate responses gets very large, suggesting that the throughput through the dentate would be larger. Although how the mossy fibers communicate with CA3 is a completely separate chapter for this one. <laughs> yes. More people should work on the mossy fibers. They're yeah. very mysterious mossy fibers. Yeah. They're just people people avoid them. They're not obvious. That's why. They're hard. <laughs> They're hard to record from. We have the official plug now. Well, thanks for being with us. This has been a lot of fun. I, um, thank you, Laura Colgan. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>